0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Aaron. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, uh, lead pastor for Riverwood. And yes, we are starting a six-week generosity campaign today, which means if you are a first-time guest, thank you for coming. I'm glad you're here, and I'm sorry. Nothing like coming to a church for the first time and they're going to talk about money. Uh, It's just one of those topics that makes us uh, squirm. Uh, Some churches talk about money just all the time, just way too much. Riverwood, though, we've actually been on the opposite side. We've probably not talked about money enough. Uh, I learned just a few years ago that uh, in Jesus' teaching, 15% of it was on the topic of money. Well, if a church were to give 15% of their Sundays to this topic, it would mean that you would be talking about money seven to eight times per year. Well, in Riverwood's seven and a half years of existence... Two years ago, we did a four-week series, and before that, we only had two sermons. So in seven and a half years, we've talked about money six times from the stage. So we're way behind the the 15% of Jesus. And now here we are about to do a six-week series. So we're almost getting to that seven or eight Sundays but, but we're, we're not there. Maybe when we're like 15 years old, we'll finally grow up and, and be brave enough to talk about this. But, but I will be honest. Some of the reason we haven't talked about it is because it makes people squirm. Too often, it feels like this is all about what the church wants from you. Like, hey, give us your money. But to use the famous Andy Stanley phrase, really what it's about is not what we want from you. It's, it's really about what God has for you. And I really hope that you'll stick with us, not just through today, but through this entire six-week series, because I really believe that if you capture onto this generosity, if, if you get the generosity gene, that it will lead you into the life that I believe you want to live, and the type of life that I believe God calls you to live. But I also am going to confess that it's not just the topic of money that makes me squirm a little bit. It's the word campaign. Uh... Just a while back, Jake was like, Aaron, do we have to use the word campaign? I'm like, I get it. it. Like, I cringe at the word because when I hear campaign, I think of a politician trying to woo the people to get their vote so that they can have the power. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe you love politics and you're fine with the word, but like, it just makes me a little uncomfortable. It just, it, it's got some negative connotations that it just feels a little icky. So why use it? Like, if the word campaign is so odious, Why even bother to use this word? The uh, New Oxford American Dictionary defines campaign as this. An organized course of action to achieve a goal. An organized course of action to achieve a goal. So now you understand why politicians use the word. They engage in these organized activities, these actions, with the goal of winning the election. But it also helps you understand why the military uses the word. That is, they are at war. When they go to battle, they engage in a campaign. It's an organized set of actions for the goal of winning the battle. It also helps you understand why nonprofits, colleges, even churches will engage in fundraising campaigns or capital campaigns. They have a goal to reach a certain amount of money so that they can then Buy land, or build a building, or hire staff, or or keep their their programs going. And almost all campaigns are time-bound. They only last for a certain amount of time. Now, I know politics, it feels like they're campaigning constantly. But really, they, they are supposed to end. Well, because we are about to engage in a set of organized activities, these actions that are going to help us achieve a goal... Campaign is actually the right word for us to use. And so I have had to get over my aversion to the word and realize... That we are going to go about doing this. As as, uh, Cassie said, we're going to be uh, trying to filtrate this into all levels of our church family. We're going to be doing 2 Corinthians 9 here on Sunday mornings. Um, If you are in a growth group, we're going to be studying various passages this week. If you look at the little uh, growth group guide that's in the uh, insert, or if you're online, you can click the link and and go and download that or print it off. You'll see you'll be studying 2 Corinthians this week in your growth groups. Uh, we also want to get this down to an individual level. As as Cassie said, there's devotional books outside. You can also find the link to download it to your phone. Uh, that's inside your handouts, get it on your phone and then use it for the next 40 days. Also, if you do not get our weekly newsletter, uh, we just send out an email every Thursday. We're going to be doing 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, just taking a little portion and just considering what is it God calls us to do. We actually kicked that off to prepare us for today, kicked it off this last Thursday. It was called A Word to the Rich. You may be thinking, oh, I'm not really rich. Well, you need to go read the newsletter because it turns out you actually are. And the things that we see then in 1 Timothy are for us to do as well. So you can see that we're engaging in an organized set of activities here. But remember the definition. It's an organized set of actions to achieve a goal. What is our goal through this? Many churches, when they engage in a capital campaign, they have a goal of raising enough money in order to you know, buy a land. Sometimes it's to hire new staff or, or you know, to start some new you know, program or something we are at a stage where it probably is the perfect time for us to do a capital campaign we are at coming we're halfway through our three-year lease on this building we've got to figure out what do we do do we sign another three-year lease Uh, do do we uh you know move into a rent to own do we try to seek to buy this outright or do we just abandon it and go find someplace else like what what it seems to be the next step now it's no secret Most of our elders, our our Sunday team, our, our Riverwood partners, we seem to have a consensus and agreement that the right thing, the wise thing is to buy this building. It just seems like that's the best stewardship. But how do we go about doing it? So it seems like a capital campaign is the absolute perfect thing for us to do. But you've noticed we're not calling this a capital campaign. We're calling this a generosity campaign. Why? Why the word switch? Because really it comes down to that goal. If the goal was merely to buy this building, capital campaign is the right word to use. But our goal is not just to get a building. We just finished up a four-week series on defining church. During that series, we saw that the church is the redeemed people of God. It's not a building. It's not an organization. It's the people. But we saw that those people weren't just a nice social club who like each other. It, it, It was a group of people who were on mission. God has given us a mission to go and make disciples, to invite people to find Jesus and follow him. We're to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the mission that we have been given. And what do we do as we invite people to follow Jesus? We want them to become like Jesus. The goal is to help people to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. So we have to ask ourselves, well, how did Jesus live and love? Generously. Jesus gave of his presence. He gave his wisdom. He gave encouragement. He gave healings. He even sometimes gave food. But most of all, he gave his life. And because Jesus has given all of it to us, he now invites us to do the same, to give all to him. He calls us to generosity. That is why we could not just engage in a capital campaign and try and buy this building. Because that is actually too small of a goal. The goal is much larger. The goal is to help you live a generous life. Because when you live generously, you impact the world. You are the blessing that we talk about being. Oh, and and by the way, when you live that kind of generosity, I've discovered that often then churches already have the money to buy land, build buildings, help single moms, plant churches, support overseas missionaries. Because that generous living just seems to generate more and more and more, helping us to be a greater blessing to all. Years ago, I was the young adult pastor at a growing Bible church in Cedar Rapids. When I joined the staff in 2002, we were running two services at the time. Within a year, we added a third service. And probably about two years later, we added a fourth. And after a few weeks of doing four services, our senior pastor looked at our elders and our staff and said, I cannot do a fifth. This is is maxing me out. And so the elders began to talk and pray, did a lot of research, a lot of discussions, and over several years ended up deciding to buy land and build a larger building. Well, to do something like this for this church of 1800 at that time, it meant millions of dollars. And so a capital campaign began. Had a very talented graphic designer in the church, and he designed these, you know, slick you know, graphics, we had these info brochures, there were all sorts of church meetings, and then there were these like uh, pledge cards at the very end. And everyone got their pledge card and either made a one-time big donation, or they said, over the next three years, I'm going to donate this. And we collected all those cards and then tried to amass it. Did we raise the millions needed? It was a huge endeavor. Huge. Well, I happened to be in the pastor's office. Just, I don't even remember what we were talking about. But almost like an aside conversation, he just said something, blurted something out that to the effect that if, if everyone within the church gave 10%, but by the way, we're, we'll talk about this in later weeks, but for many Christians, 10% is like a, a standard for a tithe. This is what you were to give. I know some people disagree with that. We're not going to get into that right now. But he said that if, if our church family of 1,800, if the families gave 10% of their income, we would not have needed a capital campaign. We would have had so much money. Not only could we have paid the millions of dollars for the larger building and for the land, we could have gone on and planted a couple more churches. That's how much money we could have had if everyone gave 10%. But instead, studies showed that within our church family, giving was between 3 and 4%. And we were told by a church consultant, that was actually very generous. Because at that time, the average American gave 2.3% of their income to their church. In fact, non-Christians gave more than church-going Christians did at that time. I haven't seen the data lately. Maybe it has changed. it, It stuck with me. I just remember thinking, how much energy, how much money was going in to just to do this capital campaign, to raise the millions of dollars, when we could have avoided all of it if we were already living generous lives. That is why it's too small of a goal for us to just engage in a capital campaign, get you to give a one-time gift, or say, over the next three years, I'll, I'll give this much, because I think God has so much more for you. I am not worried about this building. If God wants us to have it, He will provide. I am more interested in you living a generous life so that you will go out and live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. That's the greater issue at stake here. And so that is why for six weeks, we are going to talk about generosity. And here on Sundays, we'll look at it from the standpoint of Second Corinthians 9. Because in there, Paul talks about generosity. And he gives us a lot of details in a short amount of space. So if you brought a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you did not bring a Bible, we are going to put the scripture up on the screen for you. Uh, so you can read along. Uh, if you have a phone, though, with a Bible on it totally feel free to pull that out. At Riverwood, we are just fine with digital Bibles. If you're online, there should be a Bible tab inside of that church online platform. You can click on that, navigate to 2 Corinthians 9, and you can read along there. Uh, if, you, Well, you know what? Let's let's pray before we uh, get into the scriptures. Uh, Heavenly Father, I realize that uh, I've put in some time and work and energy uh, studied this week to prepare this message. But God... I just want to say this is not about what I want to say. God, I truly want this to be about what you have for us. Heavenly Father, I uh, look at the world of, of Christendom, especially in America, and I see how certain expressions of your church have abused this topic. They've twisted it. And so it makes a lot of us want to pull back. But God, I believe that you truly do have something for us. You have something better for us than to just hold on to not just our money, but just to try to hold on to our lives. Jesus, that's not how you lived. You gave it all. And now you call us to do the same. And so I pray for the Jesus followers that are listening to this in person, online, or at the podcast later, that you would use 2 Corinthians 9, that you'd use my feeble words, that you would use whatever you need to to help them to truly be generous. God, for those that are already generous, I pray that this would encourage them and spur them on to greater generosity. But for those of us who, who try to hold on to things a little too much, that you would help us to just open up those fists, our finances, our influence, our skills, and our time to give these things to you. Because God, I believe you could do far more with them than we ever could. And as we give them up, as we live generously, I believe we will find a greater joy than we thought possible as you receive the glory and people are blessed as they find and follow Jesus. So God, would you use this time for your glory to mold us and shape us into that generous image of Jesus? And it's in his name we pray, amen. Second Corinthians 9, start with me up at verse one. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you ...about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness... ...of which I boast about you... ...to the people of Macedonia... ...saying that Achaia has been ready... ...since last year... ...and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers... ...so that our boasting about you... ...may not prove empty in this matter... ...so that you may be ready... ...as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me... ...and find that you are not ready we would be humiliated uh, to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. If you are familiar with uh, the Bible, particularly the uh, letter known as First Corinthians, Paul writes to this church in an ancient city called Corinth, because they were a mess. Uh, a few years ago, we studied the book of 1 Corinthians. And we just saw issue after issue after issue. I mean, Paul had to talk about disunity that was existing within their church. There was a sexual immorality. Uh, there, were, there were lawsuits going on. Uh, they were abusing communion. Their, their worship services were completely disorganized and chaos. I mean, they were a wreck. I mean, they were the kind of church that most people would walk into and go... That's what Christianity looks like? Forget it. I'm out. And so we see 1 Corinthians just address a ton of things. Well, he writes another letter, gets called 2 Corinthians, and he doesn't touch on the same hot button issues. Uh, There's a few things he gets to, but it's like they took the first letter to heart. Uh, They made these changes. And, And so he's, in a sense, writing them saying, hey, guys, I've heard these great things. In fact, in this letter, he praises them on some things, And one of the things he praises them about is their generosity. That's why he starts off what we call chapter 9 as it is superfluous for me. In other words, it's unnecessary for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. Now, what he's talking about there, this ministry for the saints, is the idea that the the churches around the, the known world at that time were taking up collections, sending it to Jerusalem. And then the apostles or other teams were deciding how to distribute that to make sure people's needs were met. We saw a bunch of this back in Acts chapter 2 in our Defining Church series. Uh, you can read more about it in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8. So if you want a little more context, you can go back and, and read that. So he's talking about this collection for the saints. You, you, they're going to collect this money and then use that to help those who are in need. Well, Titus and a bunch of the guys decide to show up. They've been sent by Paul because as he says, he's heard that they're going to give, but he just wants to make sure. He says, I know you're already very generous. And yet he goes on to write an entire chapter about generosity. Like why? If they're good at it, why is he going to waste their time? Uh, Let me ask you this. Why does a professional baseball player take batting practice every day? Why do they go out and still catch fly balls, scoop up grounders? Why, Why does a professional pianist practice three, four, five hours a day. I mean, she probably already has dozens of songs memorized and she can play them flawlessly. Why is she still doing it more? Because just because you're really, really good at something doesn't mean you can't get better. Just because they're already good at generosity doesn't mean they can't continue to grow. Again, our goal is to help us all begin to live like Jesus, lived and love like Jesus loved. I've been following Jesus since I was four years old. And yet, I am still nowhere close to where I want to be. Am I a lot farther along than when I was four? Yeah. But yet, there's so much more growth that needs to happen. Just because you might be good at something, doesn't mean there isn't more opportunity for growth. That's why Paul takes the time to address them. Throughout this entire chapter, we're going to see different aspects of generosity. Each week we 'll key on a, on at least one keyword. Our keyword this week is that we are to be uh, to give expectantly. Our keyword is that we are to give expectantly. I see in here two different ways that we are to give expectantly. The first is that we need to have a plan to give. If we are going to give expectantly, we have to have a plan to give. Notice uh, down in verse five. Paul writes that he thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to arrange in advance for the gift. Now, when I read that, it almost sounds like Paul has sent Titus and some of the other guys, they're like, "Hey, we're here to get your money." You know, like a bill collector. But he's not trying to manipulate them. Because notice the very next phrase. It says they're there to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. In other words, they said they're going to do this. They have begun to put together a plan. But if you're like me, you've probably had many moments where you've said, hey, we're, I'm going to do this. And you never actually do it. Like I still have a fog light for my car sitting on my uh, work bench. Like I bought it. I'm going to replace that broken fog light. And a year later, I still haven't done it. Just because you say, I'm going to do this, doesn't necessarily mean you actually follow through. That is why Titus and these guys have shown up. Because he's saying, hey, you guys, you're good at generosity. You've said you're going to be generous. We're just here to help you follow through on your plan. Because you see, if you don't plan to be generous, you will not be nearly as generous as you think you are. Remember, uh, several years ago, I was doing premarital counseling with a couple. And uh, during one of our sessions, um, I will let them remain anonymous because of the story. Uh, I was doing this little exercise with them where they had to rate down, like, percentages. Uh, I'll just tell you what it was. How much of sex is uh, uh, physical, emotional, and, and spiritual? All right, so they were supposed to little, put little percentages all right. Well, in, in things like that, you know, your percentage should come out to about a hundred percent. So if you wanted to cop out, you know, 33, 33 and 34, all right, there's your hundred percent. We get done. And, uh, the groom's number was like 215%. Uh, <laughs> so we needed to talk about finances and my advice was you don't touch the books. Uh, she though was actually very, very good at it. But what I remember about it is that she shared how her dad sat her down, showed her how to maintain a checkbook, how to put together a budget, really worked on these things. And you, I was impressed. Like, man, that, that's really good. Except when it came to giving. She said that they would show up on church on Sunday. And the offering plate would start to be passed around and she'd see her dad pull out his wallet and he'd just kind of look through there. And he'd be thinking to himself, okay, we're going to lunch afterwards. Oh, I was going to do that. Oh yeah, I might need some of that. Yeah, okay, I'll give this much this week. Now, if you had asked him, hey, do you give to your church? Every week. So he probably feels very, very generous. And yet, his generosity was nowhere close to what it could have been, and I would even say should have been, because all of his giving was done spontaneously. Now, in just a little bit, we're going to talk about spontaneous giving. You need to respond to those spontaneous moments. But I'm letting you know that if you don't, have a plan, you're not going to be nearly as generous as you think you are. So you have to have a plan. Here would be my advice. First, you've got to have a plan for how much you're going to give. I'm not going to talk a whole lot about this. Ed is going to preach next week, and he's going to be preaching from verse 6 on how to give bountifully. All right, so I'll let him talk about it. But you've got to have a plan. How much are you going to give? Second, you need to decide when you're going to give. Right? Some people, they like giving weekly as part of their worship. It's that reminder that, Jesus, you gave your life for me. I'm going to give now to you. It's just a part of, of this. Other people, they need to do it as soon as they get their paycheck. They need that reminder. Like, God, this is actually from you. So the first you know, 5% or 10% or 15% or whatever you've set aside how much you're going to give, I'm going to give that to you. I mean, we actually have some people here in Riverwood that they, they get on our online portal to give. And they'll give, you know, a certain amount here and then they'll make another one and another one because they're making sure that they're giving off each and every check that they receive. That is the way they give. That is part of their worship. Some people I know, they give one humongous check at the end of the year. Like they keep a tally of if they were actually giving weekly or monthly, but they keep it all. And at the very end, they write one gigantic check because to them, that is a huge sacrifice that leads them to just say, I am being generous. So you've got to know how much to give, but you also need a plan of when you're going to give it. And then third, I would argue that you should know where you are going to give. As we read here in 2 Corinthians, we see that Paul is writing to a church saying you need to give to the church. He's talking about the broader church, but some of the people within that church in Corinth had needs. Some of this money would also be for them. And so I would say that if you are a Jesus follower, the first place you should give is to your church. However, I would also argue that that should not be the only place that you give. I I think you need to decide what is a, a just generous amount to give to your church. But then I would say you should add on another 1%, 2%, 3% and give to other places. It could be something like compassion international where you feel just really called to sponsor a child or, or support what they are doing around the world maybe it's to a, an overseas missionary maybe it's to a church planter maybe it's to a, a different organization or ministry that you just really believe in because they're giving the gospel to people see when you do those things it continues to expand your heart expand your mind it helps you begin to see where god is working beyond just in your local church God has wired each of you differently. We need to give together because by doing so, we see God do more through us than we could ever do on our own. But we also need to give in the places that God's called us because you might be passionate about an area that I am not quite as passionate about. And yet that is just as important to God's heart. And so you need to give to that. So find those one, two, three other places that you give to and you give generously to them. So you got to figure out how much to give, when to give and where to give. The second thing is, after you have a plan, I think we see here in 2 corinthians nine one through five is that we need to have a posture of generosity to have a posture. Notice the first phrase in verse two, if you still have your Bibles open, it says, "For I know your readiness all right he 's praising them, saying you guys you've got a reputation of generosity that 's why i 've been boasting about you to the Macedonians, like you guys are good at this, right as for I know your readiness in other words he's saying i know you have a posture towards generosity that you have an orientation for it some of you in the riverwood family you have an orientation towards generosity we have experienced it i'm overwhelmed by you guys you just you're you're incredible and i'm so grateful that god has brought you to be a part of this church family we have had some outside supporters who just have that orientation of giving. I mean, they're giving to their church, and yet they chose to support a brand new church plan. Many of them never having the opportunity to ever visit this place. They've never been to Waverly, Iowa. They just believe so much in the mission that God had that they gave. Their generosity is what has allowed us to get to this point. But for most of us, we don't have a natural inclination towards generosity. We live in a world, in a culture, where we are kind of taught and told That the person who has the most stuff, the person who has the biggest bank account, that's the person who's the happiest. That's the person who's most successful. And so the idea and concept of giving some money and not getting something in return, oh, that's harder. I mean, yeah, if you're going to give me a steak, I mean, I'll I'll gladly do that or some ice cream. Or if I'm going to get a nice big flat screen TV or, hey, a new car, you bet. I will give this money to you if I'm going to get that in exchange because that's going to make me happy. But just to give, that's a little harder. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you are part of a faith tradition that is all about change. Think about it. If you are a follower of Christ, that means at one time you were not, and you crossed over from spiritual darkness into spiritual light. You went from spiritual death to spiritual life. You went from being separated from God to being adopted by God. The Christian faith is all about change. But it isn't just at that initial instance of salvation. It also continues through what is called sanctification. It's that process of helping us look like Jesus, to live like Jesus, lived and love like Jesus loved. So this generosity, even if you're not good at it yet, you can be. You can grow, you can become more like Christ and have a posture of giving. Because you see, when we look at Jesus, we see he both had a plan and a posture. Jesus did not show up on earth and say, oh, what is this? These humans are sinful? Don't they know that the penalty of sin is death? What's going to happen? I've got an idea. I'm sinless. Why don't I just spontaneously die for them? No, he had a plan. Go, go back 600 years before Jesus was on earth and read Isaiah 53. Go back 1,000 years before and read Psalm 22. Go back two or 3,000 years and read the book of Genesis. You see how it all points to Jesus. God had a plan. The plan was for Jesus to give his life. But he also responded spontaneously. There were moments where he had a posture of generosity that led him to give at a moment. We've been in the book of Mark for the last year and a half or so. Let's just take the book of Mark. In chapter six, we see or chapter five, we see John the Baptist beheaded. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. So in chapter six, we see Jesus receive this news and he's sad. He knew it was going to happen, and yet it's still his cousin. John was an incredible figure that God used to prepare the way for Jesus. And so in his sadness, Jesus wants to get away. Well, his 12 disciples have just come back from their first missionary journey. They come back, they want to report everything. So Jesus is like, hey, let's go on a men's retreat. Let's go up here into the mountains. We're going to be all by ourselves. But Mark 6 says that they pull up on the shore and there are people waiting And Jesus saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And in that spontaneous moment, he gave of his presence, of his teaching. He gave healing. He gave because he had a posture of generosity. Or take Mark 11. Blind Bartimaeus is on the side of the road and he's crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, Jesus being Jesus probably knew what was going to happen. But we do not see in the scripture Jesus going, all right. Disciples, come here. All right. We're about to go into this town. There's going to be this guy, Bartimaeus. He's blind. Um, He's going to start crying out and calling out. The crowd's going to try to shut him up. you know. But we're not going to. So I just want you guys to know this is the plan. No, they're, they're walking through town. This all takes place. And Jesus wants to show them. You are to spontaneously meet these needs. You are to have a posture of generosity. So if you are going to live like Jesus lived and give like Jesus gave... You have to both have a plan, but have that posture. How do you grow in that posture? I I think it's just like you would in any area of spiritual growth. I I think some of it comes through reading the scriptures. I think a lot of it comes through prayer as you surrender like this area of your life, asking God to help you. But honestly, I think it's practice. That's where the plan comes in. That if, if you put together a plan, you start doing it. I remember years ago hearing a a gal talk about when she was just a waitress making little money. She'd put together a plan to give. She began to do it. She'd said, I'm going to give a certain percentage. And so when she got her check from the restaurant, she'd give, I think it was like 10%. She'd give 10%. Then she got a real job. Like suddenly she's making bank. Like she's making money. And suddenly she goes to apply that 10% and realizes, oh my goodness, I'm about to give a check that's larger than what I used to make in a week at the you know restaurant. Suddenly it got really, really hard. If you want to grow in generosity, that's where the plan helps. Because as you enact your plan, it does something in you and you can have that posture of, of generosity so that when the opportunities come and you learn about something, you know, I should give to this. I can help. But I also want to point out, this is not just money. This, everything we've just talked about today could be with your time. Some of us were really selfish with our time. Maybe you realize, oh, I need to have a plan for how I'm going to use my time to give it to certain people at certain places and grow to have a posture so that when the opportunity comes, you can step in and give someone your time. What about your skills? You can have a plan. Hey, here's when I'm going to you know, apply, certain skills to help people in certain ways. And then as you grow in that, you have this posture of just generous with your skills. And you see a need and you go, you know what? I can help with that. I've got the skills to give to that. This is what God wants for us. He, he wants us to live with this idea of expectantly giving. But to do so, we've got to have a plan and we have to hold a posture. Because when we do so, we're beginning to give like Jesus gave. Which means we are living like Jesus lived and loving like Jesus loved. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to grow in generosity. For those of us that uh, are already really, really good at this, uh, thank you for what you have done, the way you've wired them. But would you just continue to call them further? For those of us that uh, it's a struggle sometimes to give, or or we only think we can afford so much, and yet we're being challenged to figure out how to do this generously, generously. God, would you continue to help us to grow, to, to, to allow you to get into our lives, into our hearts, into our thoughts, and begin to change them so that we would reflect the love of Christ. Because Jesus, you gave it all. You are the very definition of generosity. Like you completely embodied it. It is your character. And any generosity that we do and exhibit merely reflects you. So Jesus, would you help us to live this way? Not just so Riverwood could afford a building or not so we could make a name for ourselves, but so that you can use us to live the life that you call us to live, to be the blessing that you call us to be, so that we might help people to find you and follow you. So, God, would you unleash this generosity for our joy and for your glory? It's in Jesus' name we pray.